Morning, church. Our scripture reading is found in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Amen. Thank you, Omar. It is indeed that. It goes to the heart. It cuts through the bone and the marrow of the matter. It divides the joint. As the message version says, God means what he says. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and to obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. Good stuff. Text came up last week in our Foundations sermon. The scriptures exist on a level of their own. We give them authority. We understand them to be given to us. We take them to be inspired. We have a very sort of clean, clear, and simple approach and understanding to these things that's very helpful to us and becomes an anchor point to us as we think about faith, as we think about what it is that convicts us. And scripture is diverse. I don't think I'm, I'm, you're well aware of that, but I want to make that point. Scripture is phenomenally diverse. And I would encourage you to take some time and buy a good book on the ancestry of the English Bible and learn about how we came to have this book that we have, because it's an incredible story. It starts so far back. And the earliest books don't always even have clear authorship. We're not even sure really sometimes who wrote them. But they've been part of sacred traditions that have carried forward in Judaism for centuries, millennia. We have literature in Scripture. We have historical chronicles, documents in Scripture. We have wisdom sayings in Scripture. We have prophecy in Scripture. We have polemic prophets who just write prolifically. Isaiah, for example. Tremendous amount of things that he puts down. And little tiny books tucked in there like Haggai and Zechariah, so-called minor prophets, who speak to the tragedies, to the wanderings, to the waywardness, to the faithlessness, to the godlessness of the age, to the people who didn't stay the course. We have the Gospels and the recorded sayings and words of Christ, only a fraction of them, I'm sure, unfortunately. We have the epistles of Paul, letters meant to encourage established Christian churches, and to give them counsel and guidance and direction. Letters from other apostles, powerful ones like James, 
long-lived ones like John, who wrote significantly in the New Testament. We have apocalyptic literature, and we have love poetry, revelation, and we have Song of Songs. But you know all this, I hope. You've looked at it enough to have gotten that sense. And in this tremendous diversity, there isn't just one simple way to read, one simple way to understand everything. I wish, for simplicity's sake, I could hand you a cardboard book, you know those kids' books, with ten pages, and you could read that ten-page cardboard book with lots of pictures, And we could even have that soothing parental sort of voice come to us and that could be it. All you need to know for your spiritual life and development. Are any of you as immature as I am? Don't raise your hand uh, and wish that that were the case. I mean, don't you kind of want a little piece of that children's book action? Yeah, I mean, the number two. There it is. Counting to ten, the number two. That's one page. And two rhymes with blue or, you know, and, and these children's books are so simple and then they sell for twelve ninety five a piece. I, I don't know. Maybe we ought to get a little literary circle here and raise some money for the church writing some children's books. So when you think about the Bible as we have it and how diverse it is, and by the way, it wasn't first translated into English. Right? was written in a multitude of languages and probably the first major translation and assemblage was into Latin. And then from Latin into various sources. We have the most studied, the most dissected, the most criticized, the most analyzed, the most torn apart, the most archaeologically examined, there we go, we have the most Look that book in the history of the world, period. It's outsold just about everything. So, so many people in the world actually have a copy. But beyond that, it has been torn apart and put back together again. And it continues to speak and continues to endure. Continues to breathe spiritual life into people's lives. But you cannot approach the scriptures faithfully with the idea that it is an English book that fell out of the sky, dictated by God in its current state and condition so that we would know what to do. That is the cardboard book with 10 pages that I want to give you. That view of scripture is the equivalent of the cardboard book. So we need several things, don't we? And with attention spans as short as mine, uh, we need, first of all, an increased attention span. I'm really worried about this sermon because most of us have three-minute attention spans, and I can't get through one illustration in three minutes. I'm really worried about this sermon because if we really push, we have about 20-minute attention span. That's a 30-minute show minus the commercials. TiVo is a wonderful thing. Great visuals, lots of laughter, and we can almost hang in there for 30 minutes. We can usually eat a meal and five desserts in that time, too. 
Or was I just talking about myself there? Um, we no longer have the sort of time, it feels like, to read Newsweek or the paper most of the time. Probably if I took a survey, I would find that the average household in this church subscribes to at least six periodicals. And of the six periodicals, most of you probably read on average half of one in a given month. And the rest of it gets recycled. That'd be my guess. We're busy. It takes time to read. It takes time. Besides, we're busy on the internet. We're busy with jobs. We're busy raising families. We're busy doing a myriad of things. So when it comes to a book that is got a long history, a book that has tremendously complex and varied religious roots, a book that was originally written in different languages, a book that's come to us over thousands of years of time. When we have a book that is this complex, it's really tough, practically speaking, to be people of the book. And with the Bible and with so many other things in life, I fear in the current times, in the current political spectrum of things, uh, I'm speaking out of the whole picture, not the right or the left, there's a powerful tendency for the sake of the soundbite, for the sake of the clear statement, to be overly simplistic and overly clear when we talk about an issue. There is no energy and no time to really nuance it in the public forum. And people don't have the attention spans to put up with nuancing it anyway. What do you think about abortion? You have three seconds to answer. What do you think about gay marriage? That's more interesting. We'll give you five seconds to answer. Give me the sound bite. What do you believe? Most of you can probably pop something out right off the top of your head. But that five second or 35 second even or minute and a half answer doesn't begin to address the complexities of those issues doesn't begin to do them justice you know that and i know that but we still get sucked in because we don't have time we don't have energy we're busy putting our attention to other things and i'm trying to pull with all of my might on this thing to get us to come back to this basis this scripture and educate ourselves to know it to learn it because we cannot possibly do what we need to do in terms of Christian claims and morality if we don't. And I'm getting to that. My big wind-up, your attention span. Never mind. You actually have pretty good attention spans. You made it through the wind-up, most of you. I only saw two people leave and half a dozen yawns, so I think we're in really good shape here. I'm feeling optimistic. Maybe uh, blindly so here. Last week, I kind of left off with the uh, scoffers in the modern apologetic. And I want to just come to that because that was maybe the last thing you heard and heard hastily. And I really want to pick up on that. 
what we are what you are going to be facing increasingly as time wears on i believe is hostility to your faith now contrary to what you might think this isn't based on faith itself it's based on the fact that most christians do not think of the relationship of their text to their faith and their faith and their text to their beliefs and actions and politics. There's a disconnect in all of that for most, most people, I've, I've, I believe. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. So I don't say that as thus the Lord has said. I say, this is what I see. This is my take on things. Now, you're an exceptionally thoughtful bunch, and I mean that seriously. I'm not just trying to butter you up. I think you are an exceptionally thoughtful bunch. And so it's possible that that statement isn't quite as widely applicable in this room as it might be in some other places. But I believe we're going to be increasingly criticized because there is a sort of simple way of approaching things and then there is a deeper and more understanding way to approach things. When I was in Hollywood, I had the, I don't know whether to call it a privilege or the unsettling uh, uh, experience of attending Julia Sweeney's monologue. For those of you who know who Julia Sweeney is, she was on Saturday Night Live for many years in the what decade, 80s, 90s, early 90s, I guess, and played a androgynous figure called Pat. What's that? It's Pat, for those of you who watched that show. And if you didn't, all of these are archived on DVD for your laugh and pleasure. Now, she has also done a number of other significant things. She's, she's done a lot of television. She's done a few movie spots. But she's someone who... who like all of us, has a spiritual journey. And it started with Christian roots and then moved to an exploration of Catholicism. And when that wasn't satisfying to her, moved to a couple of other things and ultimately to atheism. We tell stories in church of people who've studied themselves into the faith. She sort of studied herself right out of the faith. And in her monologue, Letting Go of God, which I heard in an intimate theater, I was so distressed to hear time and time again references to scriptures that I knew and stories that I was familiar with, and some of which I wasn't. Being framed in the context of a God who was immoral, who was unhappy, who was angry, who was vengeful, a Christ who was belligerent and angry, And this presentation of scripture and this presentation of Christ in this monologue was true in a very superficial sort of sense. That's what was so deeply sickening about it. It isn't that I disagreed with her that was sickening. It was the way in which the package came together. Do you follow what I'm trying to get at? The way she presented the scriptures and Christ was compelling. It made you want to run out the door and not come back. It was evangelistic in the very best sense of the word to the very worst sort of faith, and that is an atheistic faith. Because she could compellingly lay out, aha, an argument. But if you looked at it with 
any depth, it completely fell apart. It was simplistic. It was superficial. It made assumptions that could not possibly be validated if one studied the text that she was talking about. It put things together into a package in a picture that didn't clarify, but simply distorted. And yet, in its soundbite, in its presentation, it was remarkably and sickeningly clear. I left, and this was about the time Dan Brown had written The Da Vinci Code, which I also read, and Angels and Demons, which I also read. Any of you Dan Brown fans? Oh, he's such a good writer. Fiction, please. Hello? Great writer. That's not a pastoral endorsement for the content of those books, by the way. You always have to give the commercial, don't you? We live in an age when somebody's going to call you on something unless you give the commercial. And then you can say, I gave the commercial. Did you not hear? So I I believe tough times are coming for Christians in terms of their faith, not just because of Julia Sweeney or because of these sorts of things that are out there, because there's a growing consensus that it's okay to just grab something from Scripture and throw it out and say, wow, that really sounds like a loving, just, and kind God. And of course it doesn't. And we've set ourselves up for this because that is the way we most often approach Scripture, isn't it? We grab something and say, ah, there it is. Scoffers in the modern apologetic. First of all, Second Peter 3, 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he has promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Pretty good argument, huh? Where is Jesus after all? And this text was written 1900 years ago. The question is even more poignant today, isn't it? You've been looking forward to this coming. Where is it? That's what the scoffer says. 2 Peter 3, 15-17. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. John five, thirty-nine. We could look at the whole chapter from verse 31 to 47, but I want to give you verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, yet these are the scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is the word, not the scriptures. The scriptures are the word, small w, he's the word, big w, He's the truth. He's the life. John chapter 1. 
And that isn't a facile. I've thrown that out quickly, but I think we've looked at that passage in depth several times before. So hopefully you don't think I'm just, there it is. Now, with this background, understanding that the Bible is something we all, I think, appreciate except as authoritative, it's, it's something in which we base our theology, our understanding of, of much of reality and so forth, the question then comes is, uh, what is our obligation? How do, we, how do we look at this in an age in which we live? In the era of the soundbite, how is it that we develop a depth in our understanding that will enable us to move past a superficial read of something that appears to paint God as a monster. Let me give you a couple of passages and we'll just sort of play with this for right now. Turn to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. 30, verse 2. It says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, that when you make an oath, you must, before the Lord, you must keep it and complete the terms of the oath. Is that fairly correct to what your translation says? You can nod, yes, no. Okay. It goes on from there to talk about the exceptions, which mostly have to do with women and with girls. In other words, a woman living in her husband's house is subject to her husband. So if she makes an oath or makes a, 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 an oath of any kind and he rescinds it, she's not liable for it. And if he's done it upon hearing it, he's not liable either. If a woman living in her father's house makes an oath or a a girl makes an oath, her father hears of it and doesn't agree with it, he also can rescind it. But if he doesn't rescind it upon hearing, he takes responsibility for the oath and for the sin of breaking the oath. So this becomes very serious. Now, when we get to the life of Christ later, you probably recall Jesus saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't, Don't go making these things. You don't need to go there. Not everything needs to be covenantal. You don't need to uh, swear on something holy in order for your yes to be yes and your no to be no, your word to be your word. But apparently the culture of the day was, uh, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Aha, I don't have to. I had my fingers crossed. That seems to be sort of a a contemporary analysis or analogy to what was going on. And they had oath-taking because they wanted to know that when somebody said they were going to do something or fulfill something, they were going to do it. So then we get to Joshua chapter 11. Or is it Judges 11? I better get there myself and make sure. Having given you a wrong text before. That must be Judges. Judges 11. Glad I checked. Judges 11. Judges chapter 11 is about a man named Jephthah. And Jephthah was half Jewish, half prostitute. 
Interesting beginning for a man of God. And he, as half-prostitute, he's not real popular with the uh, village people. In fact, he's an outcast. But he's a scrappy outcast, as you might imagine the son of a prostitute would be. And he's good at what he does, which is fight and defend himself. And there is trouble The Moabites are really creating trouble. And the elders of this town where Jephthah was from approach him and say, we want you to go assemble an army and defeat the Moabites. And Jephthah's sitting in the catbird seat, isn't he? He said, what? You want me to bail you out? (laughs) Yeah, that's because of all the kindness you've shown me through the years, the respect you've given me and my family. Uh, this would be because you think so highly of me in this community. Why, why should I help you out? He agrees to help, assembles an army, and makes an oath to the Lord. If you will give the enemy into my hands, whatever comes out of my house first when I return to it, I will offer up as a burnt offering unto the Lord. What a stupid, monumentally stupid oath to make. He assembles his army. He's wildly victorious. He comes back, and the first thing that comes out of his house house is his only child, a daughter. And all of a sudden, Jephthah realizes how stupid he was. The daughter is gracious and understanding, seeing his strickenness, his grief, and asks for a period of time, I believe it's 30 days, to mourn her virginity, which she does. And he places her on an altar and cuts her to pieces and she is burnt as an offering to the Lord. And Jephthah is listed in Hebrews 11 among the chapter of the faithful. You will find his name there. He went on after this incident to rule and judge in that part of of Judah or Israel for another seven years. Now, How on earth are we supposed to read this simply and make sense of it? How are we supposed to reconcile the authority of word and our moral outrage? Do do you get what I'm driving at? Jephthah knew what Moses had said in Numbers 30, I guarantee it. He knew that his oath had to be obeyed or it would be on his head. He knew that he had made a stupid oath, but nobody is excused from making stupid oaths. If you make an oath, you have to fulfill it. So in Jephthah's mind, there is no excuse. He has nothing as an out. All he can do is give this poor girl the gift of time, and he does it. But he will have to offer her up. And unlike the case with Abraham and Isaac, there is no angel who stops the knife. And Israel mourns for her, yes. 
But they rejoice because they've had this great victory over the Moabites. And Jephthah goes on. He's not discredited by this. He's not rejected in the community. He's not judged in the community. He's not tried and hanged or shot or stoned or whatever it is what was going to happen to him. He is made the judge. He is put in charge. He becomes the ruler. And in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews recognizes him among the faithful. If you were an atheist, what could you do with this passage? What kind of havoc could you wreak with the notion of obedience and with a good God and with a gracious God and with, with all of this stuff? And then you could maybe, maybe bypass all of this by dismissing it as Old Testament if you were a certain type of Christian. But then his name goes and shows up in Hebrews in the book of the faithful, in the chapter of the faithful. Now you've got to deal with it. Even if you're just a new Christian and a New Testament Christian, you've got to deal with this one now because it's there. What am I getting at? Jephthah did what was right by his understanding and by the understanding of the people of the day but he did not exercise true moral agency. And I believe that when we are faced with this kind of question, God calls us to something beyond this yielding to an authority. I can't believe that in the big picture of eternity, the big picture of God's great judgment that Jephthah would go and find himself judged and not on God's side if he had stood and said, I have made a terrible error, but I will not compound that error with this terrible sin. I will not sacrifice this child. I will offer You have to sort this out too. I'm standing here and you go, no, I don't agree with that, Pastor. I think this is a better option. Good. Go for it. Think of a better option than I just gave. Find another way out. Exercise your mind and your reason and your moral thinking. Because I don't want to be the kind of Christian that Jephthah was. The kind of Jew. I don't want to say something silly and have to execute my child for it. I don't think that plays out real well in the ethical sphere in which we live. And you know, when we say we love the Bible and we do, that is one of the stories of the Bible. I think there's lots of grace in it, actually. If we study it, I think we can find it. Think about that for just a minute. What grace, not what problem it is that that Jephthah's in Hebrews, but what grace that he's in Hebrews. That because he did the best he could with what he knew and what he had, he's counted among the faithful. Could you ask for anything more for yourself? I don't hear you. You're thinking hard, aren't you? Could you ask for anything more than that? I, I couldn't. I couldn't. 
Scripture is the foundation. We know its precepts as we learn its law. Precepts, we learn its laws. We see God interacting with a society, with a group of people, with individuals. We listen to their perception of that interaction. We take what they understood to be God's will and the fulfillment of that and the way of fulfilling that and we filter that just a little. This is why we're at war in the Middle East. Because you see, the Quran has not been dissected the way the scriptures have, our Bible has. The Quran has not been vetted in archaeology the way our scriptures have. The Quran has not been analyzed and challenged and torn apart the way our scriptures have. Yes, imams have their schools, but they aren't critical in their skills or learning, to the best of my knowledge. And so what's happening with jihad and with other things is that Muslims are having a hard time morally reasoning beyond the Quran. So when the Quran sets the limits or tells them something that they've got to do, that's as far as they're willing to go with it. That's the end of it. They've divorced themselves from the possibility of moral agency because Allah has spoken. But we can look and say, did Allah really want some fool to fly a plane into a building with 3,000 people? Is that the will of Allah? Is that our God? And I said this before, and I I believe it with all of my heart. You can believe otherwise. Allah is our God. They are one and the same. Yahweh, Jehovah, all of the, the Jewish God, our God, Allah, they are referent to the same historical sense of who God is. Different texts, maybe a different prophet or two, but very related. Is this our God? No. No. My challenge to you today, and it's an overwhelming challenge, is to learn the word and love it, to quote it often, to put it deep within your heart, to sing those songs like, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Why? Because the music just drives it home. The scriptures are light and darkness. They give us the word about the word, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. They give us this image of one who transcended so much. Jesus, you see, thought in terms of moral agency or what I'm calling moral agency. He went beyond the limits of the tradition and the text. You have heard it said or you have seen it written but I say to you. Did he ever do that? Oh, yes. And you know what we want to do? We want to say, oh, Jesus did that, but he was Jesus, and that's the end of it, so that's where we stop. My challenge to you is to say, no, yes, of course, he's Jesus. 
And there is a yielding and there is a giving over and there is a surrender to that without question. And there is an admiration and a respect and an attempt to emulate in every way that person. But Jesus doesn't speak to everything. He doesn't talk about many of the contemporary issues facing our society and our world today. And Christians who don't take on the text come up with flippant and fast responses to complex and difficult issues based on sound bites from their own text, which can come back to bite so badly in the hands of somebody who wants to challenge a Christian. Let's be thoughtful and engaging. Let's listen. Let's look for that spirit who lives yet today. Let's exercise reason. Not above any sense of authority or scripture or God. But let's not make a God of scripture either. Let's see the scriptures as the light in a dark place that guides us to some place better. And let's exercise moral agency. And when we stand up and speak to the goodness and greatness of our God, and we live and speak to the consistency of his goodness and his nature and his grace, we will then be in a position to be heard. Oh God, give us strength to understand and to know and to study and to learn, to speak clearly in the face of complexity, but to always take it into account. And to live as Christ would have us live, followers in word, in spirit, in deed, in ethic, in action. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.